morning, church. This morning's reading is from Ephesians 4, verse 25 to 5, verse 2. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, James, very much indeed. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Do please uh, have your Bibles open at the passage that uh, James read for us. Uh, I wonder what you were thinking as Gillian was doing her marvellous testimony. Uh, One of the questions that went through my mind was, I wonder what language we're going to be speaking in heaven. Um, I've always assumed it would be English. I mean, of course you would, wouldn't you? Um, But perhaps it'll be Hebrew. And if it is, maybe you need to speak to the professor afterwards and sign up. Good. Well, let's, uh, let's come to the Lord's word. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you and praise you for bringing us together this morning. Uh, thank you for giving to us the scriptures And we thank you that the scriptures are God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. And so we pray that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely and needful and helpful and wonderful. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think if you want a sentence to get us started this morning, uh, it would have to be, I think, chapter 5 and verse 1. Do look down at it. Where the apostle says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Now that, I think, is a very neat summary of our passage this morning. If uh, we are Christians here today, then we are God's dearly loved children. And because that is who we are, 
our Heavenly Father calls us to, to live a life of love that makes God real to our friends and our communities. Um, a few years ago, a Christian businessman by the name of Keith Miller uh, illustrated the importance of this in a marvelous little book called The Becomers. And uh, in that book, he tells the rather lovely story of a Christian man who uh, made a fresh commitment to God one Sunday evening in church, and he resolved to live his life in a godly, consistent, and more Christ-like way. Well, the very next day, on Monday morning, uh, this man was on his way to work, and he was running just a little bit late for his train. So he had to run across the bridge, uh, down the stairs, and as he arrived on the platform with the train ready to leave, he ran full tilt into a small boy who was carrying an enormous jigsaw puzzle. And all the pieces went all over the platform. So, here was the man who the night before had said, I want to live like Jesus. If he ignored the little boy and the problem that he'd caused, he might just have been able to catch up with the last carriage on the train, fling himself on and get to the office on time. Instead, he watched the train pull out of the station and he knelt down and picked up the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and he handed them back to the little boy and the little boy looked at him and said, excuse me sir, are you Jesus? That's a true story and I think it demonstrates that the way that we live as Christian people can make Jesus either more or less real to those around us. Now that is the Apostle Paul's concern in this little section in the middle of Ephesians. He wants us to understand that the truth of the gospel is confirmed and communicated by the Christ-like behavior of those who believe it. And that happens, you see, as we understand more and more clearly the connection between three great gospel experiences. Now, these gospel experiences apply to every Christian without exception. And in fact, if you want a, a bird's-eye view of the message of Ephesians so far, well, these three experiences hold all of the details in Ephesians together. What are they? Well, first... There is our new identity, who we are in Christ. Who are we? Chapter 5, verse 1, we are God's dearly loved children. That happened, of course, the moment that we first surrendered our lives to Jesus. And what it means by being God's child is that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. It's quite a striking thought, that, isn't it? Just let that sink in for a moment. Then secondly, there is our new mind. This is the second great experience that applies to all Christians. What about our new mind? 
Well, in the passage immediately before this one, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we saw that we've been given a new ability to think clearly that we didn't have before. And we saw, didn't we, that we have a new ability to think clearly about our past lives and the desperate condition that God has rescued us from. And in verses 17 to 19, we saw that God has rescued us from three things, a hard heart, a darkened mind, and a reckless life. And you see, this this new ability to think clearly means that we understand, or we at least jolly well ought to understand, the tremendous privilege we now enjoy of learning Christ. Remember that phrase? Uh, Of learning from his lips and from his life, or if you like, learning from his words and from his works in the context of a committed relationship. And that prepares us for the third of these three great gospel realities, which is, of course, our new purpose. Our new purpose is all about how we're to live. And that is the theme of our passage this morning. Chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, We are to live a life of love. A life that makes Jesus real to other people, both inside and outside the church. It's an extremely high calling. How are we going to do it? Well, we saw, didn't we, last time, that Paul began to explain that a Christian is somebody who has a daily obligation to put off certain things from the old life and to put on a brand new spiritual wardrobe. Perhaps remember that illustration, don't you? And in this passage, he shows us what that means in practice. And I want to draw your attention now to three specific things in the text about this business of putting off and putting on. We've got some vital changes to make. That's the first thing. There are some vital changes changes all of us need to make. Paul highlights five areas in which we are to demonstrate by our behavior that we really are God's dearly loved children. Now we're not going to have time to look at all the details, but I do want to draw your attention to the pattern of Paul's teaching in these two paragraphs. Because the pattern is the key to understanding why these changes aren't simply suggestions, but are absolutely vital to our Christian life and witness. First, please will you notice that these five areas all have something to do with preserving church unity Unity is on Paul's mind throughout Ephesians. But I think because unity is, frankly, just an idea for some of us, Paul spells out the practical changes we must make in our behavior if unity is going to be a reality in the local church. 
Second, in each case, in each area of change, there is a negative behavior to put off and a positive behavior to put on. Now that may sound obvious, but I do think it needs to be said that doing one without the other won't actually produce the change that God is looking for. Uh, Alice and Michael were gardening yesterday afternoon, and I think they know that if all they did was pull out the weeds, but didn't actually put any seeds in the ground, well, there won't be any beautiful flowers to look at in the spring, will there? Now, that is exactly the same in the Christian life. Third, third pattern. In each case, Paul gives a gospel reason for the change of behavior. So, for example, in 5.2, we are to love one another just as in the gospel Christ has loved us. So have you got the pattern absolutely crystal clear in your mind? I hope you have. Come with me to verse 25, chapter 4, and let's see what this pattern looks like in the first area of change. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. So we're to stop telling lies. Now, we can all sign up for that. But is that all God is expecting? No, it's not. The putting off is accompanied by the putting on as we speak truthfully to our neighbours. So we put on truthfulness of speech as part of our new lifestyle as Christian people. Is there a gospel reason for that? Yes, there is. End of verse 25. We are all members of one body. Why is that important? Well, through the gospel, God has brought together a group of people who were previously separated from him, separated from one another by sin. But now he's brought us into a completely different kind of community. And it's a community in which we all belong to one another and depend on one another, just like different parts of a human body. But you see, that can only be a reality, can't it, if we actually trust one another. And we'll only trust one another if we're absolutely committed to being truthful with each other. And that in itself, of course, is a good enough motive. But, you see, because our culture has completely lost touch with the importance of truth, we actually need to go a little bit deeper here. Because in order for us to grasp just how important this is for us this morning, we need to remind ourselves how important the truth was to the early church. So keep a finger, please, in Ephesians and travel back with me to the book of Acts, chapter 5. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5. It means turning left in your Bible. Chapter 5, verse 1. Famous story. 
Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Now, for some years, I actually used to puzzle over the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. I thought, well, this is really, it's a bit over the top, isn't it, really? Why was it so severe? And it's only when somebody showed me many years later how this story fits into the flow of the entire Bible story that the fog began to clear. So cast your mind back for a moment to the Garden of Eden. Uh, and remember that what brought about the, the awful separation of men and women from Almighty God was that Adam and Eve rejected God's truth and they chose to follow Satan's lie instead. Do you remember that? Satan cast doubt on what God had said. He told them they wouldn't die. It was a lie. They believed it. And in Acts chapter 5, we find for the very first time a group of people being brought into a new community by the truth of the gospel. Now remember that this new community is at the very center of God's rescue plan for the entire human race. So to allow a lie to go unchallenged in that community would actually be to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you see that? Of course, we seldom, if ever, see God acting in quite the same way today. But the basic principle is still the same. God hates lies in the local church just as much as he did then. So you and I have got to learn to put off falsehood and speak truthfully to one another. So now that we've got the, the pattern of Paul's teaching clear in our minds, come back to Ephesians and let's look at the other areas of change a little bit more briefly. Second, in verse 26, Ephesians 4, we are to put off sinful anger. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, yes, it is important to see, isn't it, in that verse, that not all anger is sinful. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but I want to emphasize this morning that the occasions when righteous anger is appropriate are not nearly as frequent as some of us might think. Verse 26 says that the key test as to whether our anger is righteous or not 
is whether we treasure that anger beyond sunset. See, if we're living a life of love, we're not going to go to bed plotting our revenge because that breaks down relationships and it breaks down the body. Instead, we're going to put on speedy reconciliation. Now, I can say that easily, and it's not always easy, because sometimes the hurts go very deep indeed. So I know that this is an area where all of us, including me, need the Lord's help, and we need each other. But friends, just because we might not be very good at it, doesn't mean we can ignore it. We all need to pray for grace to become terrific reconcilers. Then the third area of change is in verse 28, which tells us to put off stealing. And you're switching off and thinking, well, okay, that doesn't apply to me. And uh, you all do seem a pretty honest bunch to me. I don't suppose you're prowling around your neighborhoods at night looking to break into your neighbor's houses. But you see, we need to think more deeply about this. Because stealing includes not paying your workers properly, whether those are domestic workers or people in your business or whatever it is. Stealing includes not paying bills on time. Stealing includes not giving your employer your very best efforts. So what's the test? How do I actually know when I have put off stealing? This is very interesting. According to verse 28, please look at it, it's when I'm no longer working purely for a better lifestyle for me and my family, but rather when I'm working so that I've got something to share with those in need. Now that's so unexpected, isn't it? If you and I were writing the, the, the New Testament, we probably wouldn't have put it like that. So I, I stop stealing by working hard, not just to look after my needs, but in order to be able to give to other people. And that's what it means to live a life of love. Fourthly, uh, verse 29, we are to put off unwholesome talk. Uh, you Greek scholars probably know that the word unwholesome there in the original literally means rotten. And it's the word that they used to use to describe food that was going off and uh, that would actually be harmful for you if you ate it. So we are to put off all rotten, stinking decaying speech because it's harmful to other people. And of course that means, doesn't it, getting rid of gossip and rudeness and obscenity and sarcasm and cynicism. And instead what we are to do is to put on speech that builds other people up. We need to learn, you see, that our words have spiritual power. Did you know that? That your words have spiritual power? Uh, the book of Proverbs is very strong on this. So Proverbs chapter 12 verse 18 says it like this. Reckless words pierce like a sword, 
But the tongue of the wise brings healing. See, Proverbs is saying there, isn't it, that your tongue is like a weapon, a weapon of mass destruction. Used incorrectly, it can do colossal damage. But alternatively, if we pray for wisdom and we actually grow in wisdom, then our words can actually be a source of healing and wholeness to the people around us. And then fifthly and lastly, in verse 31, we are to put off all forms of aggressive behavior. Because everything you see in verse 31 belongs only to the old life before we were Christians. It's not a very nice list, but I do want you to look at it. All bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. We've got to get rid of all of that. And instead, verse 32, what a lovely contrast. We are to put on kindness and compassion. The same kindness and compassion that God has shown to us. Now, each one of these changes is tremendously profound. I don't want to be reductionistic about this, and we've rushed through it all far too quickly. So for your homework this week, uh, I want to suggest that you pick just one of these areas, perhaps the one you're struggling with the most at the moment, and start talking to a friend about it. Pray about it together and ask God to help you make the changes that are necessary in order for you to be living a life of love. But now we need to move on because the second thing I want you to notice in the passage is that there is a serious warning to heed. Uh, as Christians in Cape Town, uh, we're still living, aren't we, in times when we've got lots to be thankful for. Uh, we're still free to meet as Christians. Uh, we're free to study God's word, free to share it with other people. But at the same time, there's one particular error, one particular false understanding that is, I think, gaining ground in Christian circles and is extremely serious. It is the belief that once a person is saved, it doesn't actually matter how they live. I know as soon as I say that, you, you say, well, of course, that's obvious. But a very subtle and deadly variation of that uh, is the belief that sin is a private matter. It's a private matter between the individual Christian and God, that it's actually no one else's business. Now, friends, we have to say this morning, that is not true. Yes, Christianity is very definitely personal. Uh, in order to be saved, I have to make a personal response to the gospel. But just because Christianity is personal does not mean it's private. And what we're learning, you see, in Ephesians is that we belong to one another. We're members of one body. Uh, in the local church, we, we live out our Christian lives in community with one another by learning Christ together and speaking the truth in love to one another. 
So I want you to hold on to this fact, this reality, this truth, that the Christian life is actually a community project. It's not a private affair between me and God. Now, our passage actually adds a new dimension to that idea. It warns me that my behavior has very real consequences, not just for the community life of the church family, though it does, but also for me personally. And it warns me that in addition to the other members of my church family, pay close attention, there are two other people, two personal beings, who are intimately interested in my daily life. Because they're invisible, we don't actually think about them nearly as often as we ought to, but they are real, and both of them are seriously interested in my behavior and the choices that I make. Who are they? Well, the first is the Holy Spirit of God. What's his interest in our lives? Verse 30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now you see, the Holy Spirit is with us throughout our Christian lives, whether we're aware of it or not. And you'll remember back from Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that at the very beginning of our Christian lives, God seals us with the Holy Spirit as a sign that we belong to him. And throughout our Christian lives, the Holy Spirit's job is to prepare us for the day of redemption. That is the day when the Lord Jesus returns and takes us to be with him forever. And meantime, you see, the Holy Spirit is renewing us daily and he's getting us ready for that tremendous event. But verse 30 is saying to us that when we work against him, and instead of putting off the garments of the old life, we deliberately put them back on again, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Uh, the word in the original there is exactly the same word used in Mark chapter 3 to describe the reaction of the Lord Jesus to the Pharisees when Jesus healed the man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath. Do you remember that story? Mark says Jesus was deeply distressed or grieved at their stubborn hearts. Now that, you see, is how the Holy Spirit feels when we frustrate his healing work in our lives. I think that's an extremely sobering thought. But there's also a second person watching you and me carefully every day, and that is the devil. In verse 27, Paul warns us that when we deliberately make a choice to go back to the sinful habits of the old life, what we're doing is we are giving the devil a foothold in our lives. Now, what on earth does that mean? One of the best commentators on Ephesians is an American scholar by the name of Clinton Arnold. 
And in his commentary, this is what he has to say about what it means when we give the devil a foothold. I hope this will appear on the screen. He says this, quote, There is a dangerous spiritual implication in willfully continuing to practice sinful behaviors and not cooperating with the Holy Spirit in the process of renewal. Paul warns that such a choice makes a person susceptible to a greater degree of influence by the devil. In saying this, Paul is not saying that the believer will now need an exorcism or that the person is no longer responsible for his or her actions. He's merely saying that Satan will exploit a situation wherever he can, wherever he can to gain a stronger level of influence in a person's life in his efforts to re-enslave them in a life of sin. And then he gives this very striking illustration. He says, it is as if Satan is standing ready, ready with a container of gasoline that he wants to pour on the fire of any uncontrolled passion to cause it to flame out of control. Well, I don't know about you, but I find that an extremely disturbing picture. I think it's something we must take, friends, with the utmost seriousness. But we do have to get the balance here. The devil has been decisively defeated at the cross. Yes, he has. Amen? Amen. Uh, yes, there are times in the life of every Christian when we stumble and we give the devil room to work, and life can be very miserable indeed. But you see, as far as salvation is concerned, the person who has trusted in Christ has nothing to fear in eternity from the devil. But you see, the sign that I really have trusted in Christ is that in my heart... I do not want to grieve the spirit and I do not want to give the devil a foothold. And can I say to us this morning that if those things are matters of complete indifference to me, well, it probably means I was never truly converted in the first place. And in that sense, this is a very serious warning. But thirdly and briefly and finally, uh, our passage gives us a perfect example to follow. I think the danger, perhaps, with a passage like this is that it's so full of commands that it's very easy for us to sort of walk out of church on Sunday morning, slouching our shoulders, thinking to ourselves, you know, I, I'm doing so badly here, I'm absolutely miles off target. Well, I want to close by saying that that is not Paul's purpose, and it's not mine either. All of us are works in progress, and we will be until we die. But the important thing is to keep reminding ourselves where the power for change actually comes from. Which brings us 
all the way back to where we started, chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul says, we are God's dearly loved children. And uh, as those of us who are parents know, uh, our love for our children is never conditional on our children's behavior. Isn't that right? And it's exactly the same with God. God has already demonstrated his wonderful love for us in the most costly way possible in the death of Jesus. He couldn't possibly love us more. But at the same time, Paul's point is that God's love for us is the example for people who are already absolutely secure in that love. Do you see, do you see the logic? As God's children, knowing that we're loved by him, we will want to be imitators of that great love for us. This side of heaven, we're not going to do it perfectly. But the important thing is that there should be real progress. So can I give us one question to think about, perhaps, in the coming week? I've already given you some homework. Here's a question. The question is there in uh, verse 32, where Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now here's the question. If God demonstrated his love for us in an act of costly forgiveness, and we are to follow that example, Here's the question, how are we doing? Uh, does St. Barnabas look like a family of people committed to costly forgiveness of one another? Because, you see, if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes, well, is it perhaps because we need to be reminded just how much God has forgiven me and God has forgiven you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we fall at your feet in wonder and praise at your astonishing love for us. No doubt we will only fully grasp it when we stand in your presence at the last day. But as your dearly loved children, help us to follow your example and to live a life of love with our brothers and sisters in a way that makes the Lord Jesus very real to the people around us. For it is in his name we ask it.